You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Go ahead and tell someone the title of my sermon this morning, True Freedom. True Freedom. Well, before we get into it, I just want to uh, share a, a, a uh, thanksgiving or gratitude for uh, the many of you who have blessed my family and I with uh, food for these past few weeks. We are so very, very thankful and grateful for uh, the care and love that you have demonstrated, uh, you know, my, 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 my family and I. And of course, Faye is here with us this morning and with, with Silas. Um, just forewarning for those who are married, right? Uh, I do have a cute baby, so if you, you know, you might get some baby fever if you, you know, check them out later th- this afternoon. Um, but yes, they are, they are here this morning, and uh, definitely glad to be here, and uh, glad for, uh, thankful as well for the elders who, who took up the pulpit these past few weeks and allowing us to get into some sort of rhythm and some sort of cycle with with three children now and, uh, and taking care of this newborn. Uh, but it, it's, it, it's, so I'm very grateful, and it was definitely a time of uh, refresh, refreshment as much as it was uh, a busy time and uh, getting, getting things in order with, with Silas, our, our newborn. Uh, in, in the midst of all that, I think it was also a big help because it, it helped me in my devotional times to get so, some refocus in, in, in ministry in terms of a vision for ministry and in my personal devos. Uh, this, this book that we just read from 2 Corinthians have, has, been really much, has been really a blessing to me. Um, if you know the, this book in 2 Corinthians, some context so that we have some understanding here. Um, it's in the early parts of this book, Paul is, is declaring his love for the Corinthian church. This letter is coming from the coattails of 1 Corinthians, if you know that letter, where Paul is rebuking the church of Corinth uh, because they're, they're allowing for sin and idolatry to take place in that church. But in this letter, there's a tonal shift. There's a shift in tone because the church had repented and Paul is addressing that. This is his follow-up letter. Paul explains in, in the early parts of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know that the abundant love that I have for you. Paul restates his joy and his pleasure, his love for the Corinthian church. And uh, this was encouraging to me because, I, again, as I was reading this, I'm hearing news of people bringing in blessings and food to our family. And, and again, it's just, I am overwhelmed and overjoyed at the, at the church that we have, uh, the love that you guys have shown to uh, my family. And um, I, I hope that we can continue to, to continue this culture of helping each other out, of providing food uh, to families and showing love in this way. You know, we have uh, plenty of more mothers uh, ready to pop and, uh, you know, more more wives ready to, to be mothers as well. So let's continue this culture of love and demonstration in our community. Now, as this letter progresses, Paul moves from declaring his affection for this Corinthian church to a little more correction because there are still some issues at this church. There are still some false teachers within this community, and Paul has to address that. 
Paul says, uh, in fact, in chapter 3, the beginning of this passage that we just read, he has to reinstate his, his authority as a minister of God. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from me? He says that at the very top of chapter 3. This is a rhetorical question in reference to these so-called super apostles, these false teachers in the Corinthian church who were, who were boasting about outward appearance, title and position, who needed the affirmation of, of the people, of man, to have some sort of authority. But unlike these false teachers, Paul argues from divine authority in verse 4, the beginning parts of our main passage, it says in verse 4 of our passage, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit, but the letter, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul is arguing from his vantage point that, listen, it's not by human credentials, it's not by human affirmation, it's... It's God who makes us sufficient to be ministers unto you and ministers to the Corinthian church. Not by our skill or talent or title, but because God makes us sufficient and suitable to be ministers of this new covenant. Now from this, Paul elaborates on his joys in being a minister of this new covenant that he just mentioned. And he contrasts the glory of the old covenant, the Mosaic law, the covenant of Moses, to the glory found in the new covenant in Christ, in, in grace. And all, I, now I explain all of that to say that this passage has been ministering to me and has been really affirming my own, um, uh, my, my own calling as a minister of the Lord. And, and again, it's just a humbling reality to be a minister of this new covenant um, that has been given to us by the, by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, in the midst of contrasting between the old, the old covenant and the new covenant, Paul says, Paul says something very curious in our passage. Look at it, uh, look at verse 17 with me. This is the focus of our sermon this morning. He says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. This verse, this statement, is seemingly out of place if you look at the context of it. If you're ever looking for the context of a passage, read the verse before it and read the verse after it. But, so look at verse 16 with me. This is the verse right before that, that passage or that verse. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Okay, that makes sense. And in verse 18 it says, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed in the same image. So this verse in verse 17 it seems like it's out of place. It seems like it's out of place because verse 16 and verse 18 seems like they could just flow right into each other. But there's something that Paul is trying to get out here and trying to address underneath the, the, this talk about the old and new covenant. And verse 18 really does tie everything together. Look at that with me again. Verse 18 says, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This unveiling, this transition from the old covenant to the new covenant, in order to see the glory within those covenants, is, 
is the work of the Holy Spirit. It requires the Holy Spirit to unveil the eyes. It requires the Holy Spirit to unveil the heart, to experience that. And, and in that unveiling, that is where true freedom comes from. It's in that unveiling of the heart where one transitions from the old covenant to the new covenant is where true liberty, true freedom comes from. This is the liberty that we have in Christ Jesus, in the gospel, in the faith. I think this topic about Christian liberty or Christian freedom is an important topic to discuss because oftentimes it's talked about it's sung about, it's celebrated in the church, but it's often misunderstood, it's misrepresented, it's often even abused. The freedom in Christ is often used as a license to continue sinning or to behave and think like the world, and I'm sure you have seen this before. I do this because of my Christian liberty. I go to clubs, I, I, I invest in these things, I, I watch this, I, I, I hang out with these groups of people because it's my Christian liberty. I remember back in university, this was back in, in Tyndale, right, a Christian university, in one of my classes there, Christian uh, life and living, I think it was, someone asked if fornication was still a sin. What? When did it stop being a sin? It's no longer a sin to me because I'm in Christ now. I think that was the mentality. They interpret their freedom in Christ as no longer having guilt over sins. Hence, it's okay to continue living in sin, continue behaving like the world. But is that, is that the freedom we have in Christ? Is it, is it freedom from negative emotions? Freedom from depression, anxiety, from heartbreak? Is that freedom in Christ? Is it, is it as some preachers would call, financial freedom? Freedom from financial debts, from, from, you know, break the chains of credit card bills and the yoke of tuition bills. Is that freedom in Christ? Some, some even associate freedom in Christ as social or political freedom. Freedom from the shackles of systemic oppression or, or from big government or some patriarchal ideology to enslave the, the masses. Lots of that today. Or you go to the other side, right? The other side of the aisle, and it's freedom of speech and freedom of religion, freedom of choice, and freedom to own guns, America, right? Is that the freedom that, that we have in Christ? What Paul is referring to in this passage, what the rest of the New Testament proclaims, is that the freedom we have in Christ? With so many interpretations of what freedom is, so many parties advocating for freedom, what does true freedom mean for those who are in Jesus Christ? If I was to ask you this morning, church, individually, what is freedom in Christ? What would your answer be? That is a topic of discussion for us this morning, and the hope is not to simply define what freedom in Christ means, what it entails, meaning what it is not and what it is, but to also unpack what freedom is for the believer, the benefits of this freedom, what, what we have as a result of, the, of this freedom in Christ. Because understanding what, this, what true freedom in Christ means is truly life-changing. It's truly freeing. 
It changes how we look at ourselves, how we perceive our relationship with God, how we perceive sin in our lives, how we perceive and go about in the world. It changes what, our, what we put our hope in. So brothers and sisters, if, if you have not been experiencing your freedom in Christ, the freedom that Christ offers, my hope is that you would experience it today, that you would walk out of this place with a renewed mind, a renewed heart, a reinvigorated hope in our Savior. So let's unpack our passage and discuss what true freedom in Christ is. So first and foremost, to further expand on the context of our passage of this freedom that Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians, as mentioned, he's going through the, the, the merits between the Old Testament and the New Testament, or rather the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. He's contrasting the two. Let's go back to verse 4 to 6. This is where he starts it. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not for the letter, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Again, he says we are, we are ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Paul's referencing the old Mosaic covenant here, the, the written law, the tablets of stone. He even says, if you look up at a, a, a verse right before that, verse 3, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone. That's a reference to the, old, to the, to the Ten Commandments, but on the tablets of human hearts. Paul is calling back to the ministry of Moses, whose ministry was based on these tablets of stone, Ten Commandments, writ, the written law of God, written on stone. And he makes a comparison between that ministry of Moses to the ministry of, of the church of God. And, and, and he compares it because it, the, the law of God is no longer written on stone, but rather on the hearts of man, on human hearts, as he says in verse 3. Now from this, he expounds on the merits of this new covenantal ministry. Look at verse 7 to 8 with me. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Again, he's, he's referencing the Old Testament and Exodus 34, to be precise, where Moses receives the tablets of stone once again. He delivers it to the people. He comes down the mountain, and his face is shining to the point where the people ask him, put a veil on his face, and we'll come back to that reference later. That's what he's talking about in, that, in those couple of verses. Then in verse 9, we start to get the sense in what Paul is talking about in this freedom that he mentions later on. He says in verse 9 of our passage, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. He brings up, the, he, he brings up the, these two ministries, the ministry of condemnation and the ministry of righteousness. What is these two ministries? Again, he's referring to the Old and New Covenant. The ministry of con condemnation is another name for the ministry of death that he talks about in verse 7, if you caught that. 
But that ministry in that, in that covenant is tied to the law, as we mentioned. It, the law was the basis for that Old Testament covenant. Why it's, and the reason why it's called the ministry of death and condemnation is because, listen, the law served no other purpose except to bring knowledge of sin and our insufficiency to live up to the standards of God. That's why the law was instituted. That's why the Ten Commandments was given to humanity. It was, again, as I said, to bring the knowledge of sin and to point to our insufficiency to fulfill the law, the standards of God, and to really to save ourselves. Look at Galatians chapter 3 with me. Galatians chapter 3, verse 21. It says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture, talking about the law, talking about the Old Covenant, talking about Moses and all the writings of the Old Testament, scripture imprisoned everything under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Paul is saying that the law, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, was given in order to categorically call everyone sinners. You're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're, you're all sinners. That's what it is. To imprison them. Paul is saying, like, here's God's standards, right? The Ten Commandments. No other gods, don't take his name in vain, keep the Sabbath day holy, honor your mother and father, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet your neighbor's wife or his possessions. That's the law. None of you can live up to it. And because you can't live up to it, we're all sinners. That's what Paul is saying. It imprisons, it categorically calls everyone sinners. We've all failed. None of us can keep the law of Moses. James says in his, in his letter, if you break one, you've breaking them all. And note again the harsh word that Paul uses, imprisoned, right? Back in, in that Galatians passage, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Paul is describing the hopeless state of humanity, of depraved humanity. Not only do we not live up to the standards of God, we cannot on our own escape the law and its demands, meaning the punishment for breaking, or for breaking the law, the punishment for sin. And we know what that is, is for the wages of sin is death. That's why back in our main passage, Paul calls the Old Covenant a ministry of death, a ministry of condemnation. It only served to point to humanity's wretchedness, to humanity's sin and inability to live up to God's laws, our inability to save ourselves. Now contrast that with the ministry of righteousness that Paul talks about. This is in reference to the new covenant and the righteousness that is made available to all of those who are in Christ. Romans chapter 3 verse 20 it says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We just talked about that. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 
This is the essence of the ministry of righteousness. It is forgiveness of sin made possible through the shed blood of Jesus Christ that pays for our debts, that pays for the legal demands of the law and credits Christ's righteousness to us, justifying us before a holy God, declaring wretched righteous, the sinner a saint. That is the glorious new covenant that we are a part of. The new covenant that not earned or deserved by the merits of humanity, but fully and eternally purchased by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Amen. That is the covenant that we belong to. The glory that we are a part of, the glory that that Paul is reveling in. Look at verse 9 to 11. With me, Paul goes off. He says, For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will that is permanent have more glory. Paul's a little excited about the new covenant, isn't he? But he's, he's declaring the glorious merits of this new covenant that we as believers are a part of. How, 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 how the new covenant has more fruit, has more goodness, has more righteousness than the covenant of death, the old covenant of condemnation. We are part of this new covenant. And it's not just the, the, the glory that he is reveling in, you have to understand, but it's also the freedom we have in the new covenant. See, what is true freedom? What is it that Paul is getting at in the midst of this talk of ministry of death and ministry of uh, condemnation and ministry of righteousness? What is true freedom? Freedom from sin. Freedom from sin. We are freed from our imprisonment under the law that declared us sinners because, again, we could not do enough good. We could not do enough good to fulfill the law's demands And thus we were sentenced to the punishment of sin, which is death. Not just physical, but spiritual death. Yet in Christ, in the new covenant, paid for by his blood, we are forgiven of that sin. Christ's righteousness credit to us, and we are no longer, we no longer need to fear death, both in this life and in the next. The, the, The gates of that imprisonment under the law has been flung wide open. It is why with glorious praise, Paul declares in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55, O death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, we are freed from the power and the punishment of sin. That's what Paul is talking about. But he also, what we have to understand as well, is that we're also freed from the preference of sin. The preference of sin. If you recall from our many studies in the depravity of man, in, 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 our, in our depraved state, we do not choose the things of God. We do not choose the things of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 to 12. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, no, not even one. Again, in our depravity, we do not choose the things of God. The reality is we cannot 
choose the things of God. This is the depths of human depravity in our sin nature that Paul describes and he, he, that, that, that we are imprisoned in apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not just that the, the, the law was a cage around us that highlighted our sin. In our sinfulness, in our sin nature, we loved the cage. We loved being in the cage. We chose the cage. In John chapter 3, verse 19, always love this passage, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So it's not just a matter of we're choosing which sides. We chose darkness and we hated the light. That is the depths of human depravity. And you, you try, to try to grasp what, what John is saying in that passage. Holy God, most majestic, most beautiful, infinitely glorious, infinitely good and kind and loving, condescended into the earth, took on human form, Jesus Christ, the exact image of the invisible God. And we, humanity, we love darkness instead. We love the, the filth, the rot, the putrid evils of this world instead of what was good and glorious and truly beautiful in Jesus Christ. That was our preference. That was our choice. It's always interesting, you know, in the debate between, for, or rather against Reformed theology, those who oppose this idea of God's sovereignty and monergistic work of salvation often talk about, well, what about free will? Man's free will and human agency to choose God. The reality is in our depravity, in our sin nature, our choice always leads us to choose anything other than God. The reality is your will is not free while you are a slave to sin. There's no such thing as free will in the in, in depraved man. That is the narrative of Scripture prior to the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit in us. We were slaves to sin. What choice does a slave have? What, what choice does a slave have? Nothing. No choice except to do the will of their master and sin was ours. But praise be to God because for freedom Christ has set us free. So do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This is true freedom in Christ that we no longer have to yield to the preferences of sin, but can now choose to walk and not just walk, but run and pursue the things of God. Romans 6, 6, Paul says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we, know, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That is the freedom we have in Christ, the freedom from sin. No longer under the power of sin, no longer the, under the punishment of sin, and no longer needing to yield to the preference of sin. So if you've ever felt powerless against temptation, 
Like you keep making these wrong decisions in your life. Listen, our old nature has been crucified with Christ. He has given a new nature to us. One that can now desire the things of God. One that can now choose to love the light and hate the darkness. To choose what is glorifying and honoring to God. What is pleasing to Him. And only in Christ do we actually gain this, this choice to choose what is sacred over what is sinful. That is true freedom. What is true freedom? I'll give you the next point here real quick. What is true freedom? Freedom from separation. Secondly, freedom from separation. Look at verse 12 with me. Since we have such a hope, Again, talking about this glorious hope that we just talked about, elaborated on, moving from a ministry of condemnation to a ministry of righteousness. We now have and been declared righteous in the eyes of God. This is the hope that Paul's talking about. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, the same, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Again, Paul is referencing this passage, a story in the Old Testament when Moses gets the Ten Commandments, the tablets of stone for the second time. And he's up in the mountains of God. This is Exodus 34, again, if you want the reference. And after coming down from the mountain to the people, his face was shining. It was transformed. It's actually interesting. And in, in, if you've ever seen a, a Renaissance painting or, or sculpture of Moses... He's always the one who's depicted with horns. Because in the original Hebrew, the word for shining is also closely related to growing horns. It's all figurative, of course, just to point to the fact that Moses was completely and radically changed after coming face to face with a holy, holy, holy God. So much so that his face was shining and the people were afraid. And in Exodus 34, verse 33, it says, When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Paul is saying in our passage that that veil was not just necessary physically to separate the glory of God that these sinful people could not look upon on Moses' face, but it was also symbolic. That veil was symbolic for a veil that had been put over their hearts that separated them from the knowledge of God. That's what veils are symbolic of. It's separation. It's a barrier. Another famous veil in Scripture is the curtain in the temple. It kept people out of the Holy of Holies, the, the centermost inner part of the temple where the presence of God resided and where only the, the high priest could enter in. And understand that veil was necessary because should humanity, sinful humanity, approach the presence of God in their depraved state, the Bible says that they would die. Death. Because God's holiness consumes sin. So much so that uh, if you know the story of the high priest, 
He would, he, his, his clothing would have bells and tassels at the bottom of it. And he would go into the Holy of Holies with a rope tied around his ankle. So that if he went into the Holy of Holies and, there, and God found some sort of sin, some hint of sin inside of him, he would drop dead and the priests outside had a rope to pull out the body. That's how much they feared the presence of a holy God. And what Paul says in our passage is that only through Christ is that veil taken away. Only through Christ is that veil taken away. Those in Christ are free from the separation from God. That veil, that curtain that separated us from the Holy of Holies. In fact, not only are we free from that separation, we are now invited in to draw near to our God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. I love this passage. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. With confidence, draw near to the throne. Why is that word confidence in that passage? Because that it's, it's meant to, 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 to contrast that fear and trepidation that the Old Testament people, Old Testament worshipers had in approaching the throne of God, approaching the Holy of Holies. Yet, in the New Covenant, we are invited to have confidence that we can draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Understand that great privilege. Again, in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, it was only the high priest who could approach the Holy of Holies. Not just, and not just draw, again, not just, not just draw near, but we are free to do so. We are free to, to, to come and approach God, to take that place of, of that, that high priest. Again, we are a royal priesthood in Christ now. And not just draw near, but to know God intimately, relationally. In the chapter after our, our main passage, 2 Corinthians 4 to 6, it says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has, shine, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Sin brought separation between us and God. The new covenant in Christ frees us from that separation and secures our relationship with him, inviting us into the Holy of Holies, into his presence, so that we can know him, so that we can have relationship with him, so that we can be where he is. So listen, if you've ever felt distant, if you've ever felt far away from God because maybe maybe your sin or the choices that you've made understand that you can draw near to God without fear of being rejected consumed alienated you can draw near with confidence knowing that you will receive grace from the heavenly father if you've ever felt that you are too unworthy to come to church, to come into the presence of God. Understand that at, at the death of Jesus Christ, 
The veil was torn in the temple specifically for that reason, so that you can come bearing all your sins and hardships and all your heartaches. You can bring it all freely to the cross and receive mercy and help and forgiveness. If ever you've desired to know your creator or your purpose in this life, the veil has been removed. The separation has been removed. You can come and know God and have a relationship with him. To be enlightened in the knowledge of the glory of God. This is freedom of separation. Freedom of separation. Lastly, what is true freedom according to our passage? Freedom from stagnation. Freedom from stagnation. Look at verse 17 with me. Now the Lord is a spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. This is our passage And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Listen, if you've ever felt stuck or not growing or not changing in your walk with God, if you think you're still struggling with the same old sins and the same old mentalities and these fleshly desires... And you feel like you're, you're not going anywhere in your walk with God. Your, your walk with God is just going downhill, maybe. Or maybe it's plateauing. Understand that those sentiments are simply untrue. Understand that that is not the narrative of Scripture. That is not the trajectory of the believer. The trajectory of the believer is always upwards and onwards. It's never back. It's never down. Our passage declares that in our freedom, the freedom that is granted to us by the Holy Spirit that unveils our eyes, that brings us into the new covenant, we are constantly and progressively being changed, being sanctified to be more like Christ, being brought from glory to glory. That's what sanctification is. It's not being perfect right away. It's not being sinful one moment and then next thing you know, you're, look at me. Christian, perfect. But it's day by day, lesson after lesson, trial after trial, test after test, you are being transformed into the image of Christ. Understand, contrast that to the life of the unbeliever, the ones who are still in sin, those still imprisoned under the law of sin. They are stuck in their depravity, not going anywhere in their life. Not going anywhere in, the, in, in their spiritual life. Regardless of whatever avenues, whatever ideologies or philosophies they pick up, they will always be stuck in their depravity. Not so for the believer. Paul says in his, his first letter to Corinth, addressing sinners, he says... Do not be idolaters as some of them are. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That is the heart and the mentality of those who are in sin. They're just living their life. Eating and drinking 
They, they go, get up to play or do whatever they need to do. Then it's the same cycle over and over again. Only living for themselves. Only living for the lust of the flesh, the, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. An endless cycle of depravity. No hope for actual change. You might say, well, but, but others are getting richer. Others are getting promotions. Or others are getting... getting uh, more knowledge or intelligence, better, better houses and incomes. And others are getting into shape and they're getting career changes. How about them? They're successful. What good is any of that in eternity? Will they bring their riches, their titles, their accolades before a holy God and say, look at me, look what I've done. What would God say? What merit is it all? The change, the, the, the progression that the world experiences is, is, only, is, is only limited to this life. Because in their sin, their station before a holy God remains the same. Their end is destruction. Their wealth and success in this life merit them nothing. In eternity. Nor does, nor does our things merit, our good works and our good deeds merit us anything in eternity. So listen, believer, brothers and sisters, do not judge your life by the standards of a sinful world. Do not compare yourself to the unbeliever who might be, who might be seeing success after success, promotion after promotion, titles and accolades, Yet in the eyes of God, he never knew them. They're just sinners. Do not compare yourself to the world. Your treasure, your home is in heaven. It's in Christ. It's guarded by the Spirit. In reality, sinners don't care if they're stuck. Again, they enjoy the muck and mire of sin. It's saints who sit uncomfortably in it and desire escape. Desire change. For us who are free in Christ, this is our sure hope that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That he will not leave us the same. That every trial, every hardship that we face, every test, even the tests that we fail, is always one more strike on the anvil, one more minute in the crucible of change that God uses to shape us into the image of the Savior. Listen, even that despondency that you feel when you fail the test, when you, when, when, you, when you see sin in your life and you, and, you, and you can't help but notice that you're going back to old habits and old mentalities in your life and you are discouraged by how you are living and how you're walking with the Lord, even that is evidence of a changed nature. Of God growing your desires for the things of His. Of God's craftsmanship in your life. 
2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We must set our eyes, set our hope on the things unseen, the things that God is doing in our lives that we may not even notice. The things that God is growing in us. The things that have eternal value. And listen, you know, if you're, if you're thinking that this hope of freedom is all on our shoulders, right? That we have to, okay, right, we're free from sin now and I have to work, I have to strive for, for this life change Pursue the things of God. If we think that all of that is on ourselves, that is on our shoulders, that progress is on us, that's not the hope that Paul is talking about. Again, at the very end of our passage, Paul says, For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The unveiling of the eyes, the transitioning us from, from a ministry of death to a ministry of righteousness, that freedom, all of it comes from the Holy Spirit. Paul says this, this statement with the, old still, with the Old Testament still in mind. Paul is still invoking to memory the many times that the Spirit moved in power in the Old Testament. The same spirit who hovered over the waters during creation. The same spirit that empowered Samson to break chains. The same spirit that even caused a vain king like Saul to become a prophet. The same spirit that quickened dead bones. The same spirit that equipped and inspired ordinary men to become prophets. The same spirit that God himself promised when he said, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That is the same spirit that we have been empowered with. The same spirit that guarantees our salvation, our sanctification, and our freedom from sin. So brothers and sisters... Listen, if you are feeling stuck in your walk with God, stuck in your old ways, understand, according to Scripture, and our great hope is that we are never stuck. We are never stagnant. We are never stationary. We are always being changed Slowly but surely, day by day, by the Holy Spirit, to be the workmanship of God, to be image bearers of Christ. And listen, you may not be where you want to be right now. But you have to remember, thanks be to God that you're not where you were. You may not be that that person that you want to be for the glory of God that has it all together. 
But praise be to God, you're not who you were. The man who was stuck in sin. The woman who, who, who could not choose anything that was good for the glory of God. We have a freedom in Christ. And listen, brothers and sisters, God is not done with you yet. God is not done with you yet. True freedom in Christ is freedom from sin, freedom from the power and the punishment and the preference of sin. We're no longer in that cage that declares us sinners. In Christ, we, have, we are a new creation. We are a new creature, declared righteous before a holy God, justified. Freedom in Christ means freedom from separation. We can now approach the throne of grace. The veil has been, been torn, and, 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 and the route to the throne of grace is wide open. We can have a relationship with God with confidence. Freedom in Christ means freedom from stagnation. Never stuck. Our growth as a believer is always upwards and onwards to the glory of Jesus Christ. So that's, that's encouragement for us this morning. Listen, if you have yet to put your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, know that you are, you are, are loved by a heavenly father who sent his son to die on your behalf for the payment of your sins, for all the wrongdoings that you've done, so that you can have a right relationship with him. And the only way to get that relationship is to put your faith in what Christ has done on the cross and in the grave. So the invitation for you is to put your faith in him today so that you might be free just as, as we have talked about this day. So that you might experience the freedom in Christ today. Freedom from sin. Freedom from, from separation from God. And for the believer, I want to encourage you once more that God is not done with you yet. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Remember the cost of your freedom. Remember the blood of the lamb that was shed so that you may no longer be enslaved to sin. Remember, church, that the veil that was torn so that we can, no we can be with God, no longer separated from Him. I invite you, church, come and experience true freedom in Christ. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we rejoice in this new covenant that you have paid for by the blood of the Lamb. In this new covenant that you have invited us to and have welcomed us in.
that we might truly be free, Lord. Free from the shackles of sin. Free from the, that, that imprisonment of the law's demands of having to try and work for our good. Work for our salvation. Freed from that title of sinner. All because of what Christ has done on the cross. What he has conquered in the grave. So that we might have life. So that we might be transformed. Sanctified into the image of the Son. Lord, we praise you and we glorify you. We thank you for this great privilege. Forgive us for the times where we have taken this freedom for granted. Where we have even abused it. And used it as a license to continue living like the world. Living for ourselves. Living in sin. Lord, help us to truly live in that freedom that you have afforded us. We might not be the same. But we might truly be free in Jesus' name. I pray, O oh God, for the brothers and sisters, O oh Lord, who are still living in the old self, who are still living in the flesh. I pray, O oh God, that you would renew the joy of their salvation. I pray that you would remind them, O oh Lord, of the truths that we talked about this day, that they can come to you, to your throne, without a barrier in front of them, in confidence to receive mercy and grace and forgiveness, and to have a right relationship with you. I pray, O oh God, by the work of your Spirit, that you would encourage hearts this day. That, Lord, you would lift our eyes up, oh God, to see the salvation that is in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the freedom that he has won for us, the victory that he has won for us, the assurance that we have that we we do not have to stay the same. That you are progressively changing us and sanctifying us for your glory and our good. Lord, we praise you and we thank you. We give you all the glory again for this great hope that we have. In Jesus, your mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.